Good morning. Uh, it is always a joy and a privilege to be with you. Uh, turning your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 3, uh, and we're going to be looking at the first 16 verses together, and uh, as you turn there, let, let me open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much that we can uh, open up your word this morning. God, I pray that you would enable me uh, to proclaim Christ faithfully. Lord, I pray that you would help your people this morning uh, to draw near to Christ, to look to him, to treasure him, and to serve him faithfully. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sometimes a road that seems very promising uh, can turn out to take you where you never wanted to go. Uh, One example of this in my life, uh, early, I think this was December, I was driving from Charlottesville to uh, Louisville for a seminary class. And this happened, this was on a Sunday afternoon, this happened to be that Sunday we got hit by the big snowstorm this year. Uh, So so I'm driving... Right through the midst of that, there are you know, cars strewn on the side of the road everywhere, and I, I make it to West Virginia, and I, I need to get gas, so I pull off and fill up, and you know, I, I'm leaving the gas station, and how hard can it be to get back on the 64? So I'm driving, I'm looking for the, the turn to get back on 64 going west, and I feel like I'm going farther than I, like I should have seen it by now, and I, I haven't seen any turns, and I'm driving along, and And then I realized to my dismay that I'm on about a half mile long entrance ramp that's one way that's taking me to get back on 64 going east. And then this is taking me going the wrong direction, which turned out to be a huge delay and I'm going 20 miles an hour on the road. And uh, so it was a very unfortunate situation. But I, I share that because the Christian life can be like that. I mean, we, we as Christians want to grow, we want to progress, we know where we're trying to get to, but sometimes there's the danger that in our effort to grow, we can start down a path that actually leads in a very dangerous direction, uh, even in the wrong direction. And this seems to be exactly the Apostle Paul's concern for the Philippians as we turn to Philippians chapter 3. He loves them. He, he wants them to grow. He knows that as Christians, they want to grow. But he also knows that there will be those who will come alongside them and try to help them grow, but in the wrong direction. And so look with me at Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now Paul is talking here about false teachers. False teachers whom he describes as dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. And at first you may think of that and it may conjure up a picture of you know, this ravenous looking wolf with fangs that's, that's just very scary looking and you might try to picture these people as something akin to you know, gang members or criminals or people with tattoos and wild hair. But that's 
that's not at all the, the kind of person Paul has in mind. I think if you were to try to picture who, who might these men be that are coming into the church and leading people astray, I, I think we should picture uh, maybe a man dressed in a suit, who's well-groomed, who, who has that million-dollar smile, who seems very charming and polite, who is smooth with his words, who's hard-working, who's well-read, who's cultured. Uh, This would be an eminently religious man who prays and gives and goes to church. And he'd be one who's eager to help you in your faith. You see, the man Paul's describing here is a ravenous wolf, but one dressed in sheep's clothing. These are men who have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. And in this particular case, Paul is warning the Philippians of men that we now call Judaizers. Or elsewhere in the New Testament, they're referred to as members of the circumcision party. Uh, Because they were Jews who had become Christians, or at least professed to be, but they were telling Gentile Christians that in order to be a true Christian, they had to keep part or all of the Old Testament law especially the command to be circumcised. And we know that that's who Paul's talking about here because he calls them mutilators of the flesh. That's Paul's sort of pejorative way to referring to this circumcision party. And that's why Paul says in verse 3, no, we are the circumcision. And it's important to understand that the problem with the Judaizers went far beyond confusion over what obedience to God looked like. It wasn't just a question of whether or not it was obedient to be circumcised. It, it, it wasn't akin to the disagreement that Baptists and Presbyterians have today over you know, who should be baptized and how should baptism be practiced. Um, in other words, the Judaizers weren't just saying that one needs to be circumcised to be an obedient Christian. They were saying that one needs to be circumcised to become a Christian and to be justified before God. In other words, they were saying that faith in Christ alone is not enough for salvation. We need Christ plus works. And so they were exchanging the glorious gospel of the grace of God for a man-made religion of salvation by human effort. And as a result of this, they were looking on genuine Gentile believers and viewing them as if they were unclean outsiders, whom Jews would call dogs, while assuming that their own fleshly circumcision gave them privileged standing before God. And in doing so, they were leading Gentile Christians away from Christ and toward works-based salvation through circumcision and Old Testament law. And so Paul recognizes this for what it is, a complete denial of the gospel and a pathway to hell, and that's why Paul unmasked these men for what they are, calling them dogs, saying, no, they're the ones who are actually unclean before God, and evildoers, because they're like whitewashed tombs that are clean on the outside, but inside are full of dead men's bones, and he calls them mutilators of the flesh, because they pervert the sacred Old Testament rite of circumcision into a form of mutilation that condemns to hell. 
And it's why Paul begins by telling the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord and in His grace rather than being lured away into this Judaizing doctrine that leads to bondage, envy, and misery. But you know, Paul felt the need to warn them of this. And as he says, to warn them repeatedly. He says to write the same things to you is no trouble to me. It's safe for you. He's told them this repeatedly because there's something appealing about the Judaizers' message. It's a poison, but it's a poison that tastes good. It's a lie, but it's a lie that sounds plausible. And I think that this lie of the Judaizers is appealing, especially because it appeals to our desire to feel assured before God. Uh, To illustrate this, uh, I remember the first time that I went out of the country. I went to Ethiopia on a mission trip, and, and I also remember coming back, and you know, you've been away from home for a while in a very foreign place. You, you're sort of eager to get back to your own country, uh, but I also remember standing in that line where you kind of go through customs, and uh, you, you're interviewed by someone, and, and you find out, are they going to let me back into the United States or not? And, and as you stand there, I mean, Maybe I'm the only one that felt this way, but there's just this little bit of nervousness, like, what if they don't let me in? And, and so what do you do? Well, you reach in your pocket to just double check, okay, I've got to make sure that passport is there, because if I don't have my passport, I'm not going to make it in. And we reach and we feel for something that can give us this sense of confidence that, yes, I'm going to get in because I have this passport. Well, in a parallel way, we, we want a passport before God. You know, we want something we can rely on to think, okay, when I stand before God on Judgment Day, I can know that, that I'm going to make it in. And, and the Judaizers are basically offering, instead of faith in Christ, they're coming along and saying, well, here's something tangible. Here's something you can touch and feel. You can be circumcised. Or in the modern terms, you could be baptized. Here's, here's something outward that you can do that you can cling to as this sense of assurance. But they're offering it as a replacement of trusting Christ and Christ alone. Or to give another illustration, I remember um, back when I was you know, in grade school and, and a big test is coming up. And, and of course there's times when you know, maybe I didn't feel very well prepared and there's like too much reading to do, but what I would always do before the test is sort of ask classmates, hey, like, you know, how are you feeling about the test? Like, did... Did you do the whole, you know, review sheet? Did you do all the reading? And, and, and the reason we do that is because we think, well, even if I'm not totally prepared, if I know my classmates didn't do the whole review sheet either and I feel more prepared than they are, then I think it'll be okay because the teacher has to grade on a curve, right? And, and again, we, we can do this spiritually, you know, we, we can think, okay, I'm going to stand before God and be judged, but I'll look around and just sort of see, well, am I ahead of the other people in church? Am I ahead of the other people at work or in my community? And, and that we can look to for this sense of assurance. And now think about what the Judaizers are offering. They're saying, oh, you're Christians, but if you want to be really assured before God, if you want to be a real Christian, well, here's the extra. You need to be circumcised. You need to start eating a certain way. You need to dress a certain way. You need to keep all these laws from the Old Testament. And these are things that can sort of distinguish you from others and give you this sense of 
assurance. And they present this as a way to grow and mature and become a sort of a higher and a truer Christian. That's why it's appealing. And yet Paul knows that in reality, this teaching that may draw the Philippians in will actually provide the exact opposite of what it promises. That it promises assurance, but it leads to doubt and fear. That it promises freedom and spiritual progress, but it leads to bondage and sin. That it promises life, but it leads to death. Because it leads us away from the one and the only one who can give true freedom and true confidence before God, and that's Jesus Christ. But you know, this Judaizing doctrine uh, is dangerous to us just like it was to them because it comes in many forms. You know, it's not like there are many Judaizers today in the sense of Jewish people who come into Christian churches and try to convince Christians to get circumcised and keep the Old Testament law. But there are Judaizers at heart everywhere. Because the real heart of Judaizing doctrine is self-righteousness. And I don't just mean self-righteousness in the sense of being stuck up and thinking that you're better than everyone else. I mean self-righteousness in the sense of thinking that something you do contributes to your justification before God. And have you ever noticed that that's really at the heart of every religion except biblical Christianity? And think of Islam, right? You go to heaven by following the five pillars, and if your right hand outweighs your left hand. Buddhism, you attain salvation or nirvana by following the eightfold path. Hinduism, you attain salvation through either the way of works, the way of knowledge, or the way of devotion. Rabbinic Judaism, salvation comes through walking in repentance and keeping the law. It is only Christianity that says salvation comes not through what we do for God, but purely through what He has done for us. Yet even within Christianity, self-righteousness often rears its ugly head. This was the great issue of the Reformation, when men like Luther and Calvin recognized this leaven of the Judaizers in the Roman Catholic Church. Salvation was being sold through indulgences. Forgiveness was being earned through penance. And the outward act of baptism was being used as a means to confer justification. And to this day, the Roman Catholic Church explicitly teaches that justification before God is based on faith plus works, exactly like the Judaizers Paul is speaking about here. And yet even closer to home, this self-righteousness so often creeps up in our own hearts as well. Because it's not just a matter of what we do on the outside. And it's not just a matter of what we sort of formally confess. But it's a matter of our heart. And we can take good things even the best of things like praying and reading the Bible and going to church and being kind, and they can actually lead us away from Christ if we begin to rely on them as the basis for our acceptance before God. And so a path that looks like a path to Christian progress can actually be a U-turn in the wrong direction. And that is Paul's great concern here in Philippians chapter 3. That's what he wants to warn us against. 
And so what he does for the Philippians and for us in the rest of this chapter is show us how to grow as Christians in the right way. And he's going to use himself as an example. And through his example, we are going to find three crucial things that we must do in order to grow as Christians. And the first is this. Grow by continuing to fully rely on Christ. Grow by continuing to fully rely on Christ. We're going to look especially at verses 3 through 9. So in verse 3, Paul says, For we are the circumcision. That is, we who believe in Christ are the true people of God, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now when Paul speaks here of the flesh, he means who we are apart from Christ and all that we can do in our own efforts. And Paul is saying that the Christian life from beginning to end is lived by forsaking confidence in the flesh and relying wholly on Christ. Christians don't rely on the flesh for justification before God. Right? He, Paul says we glory in Christ Jesus. He alone is our righteousness and the basis of our confidence before God. And Christians also don't rely on the flesh for sanctification. We worship by the Spirit of God. That is, our worship is enabled and empowered by God Himself. Right? We don't begin in the Spirit and then try to become perfected by the flesh. No, we receive the Spirit by hearing with faith, and we grow by walking in the power of that Spirit we have received. But, just in case any would insinuate, well, Paul, you know, you say Christians don't put any confidence in the flesh, and that's because you really have no reason to put confidence in the flesh in the first place. You are just fleshly inadequate. You can imagine the Judaizers trying to insinuate that. Well, then listen to what Paul says next. Verse 4, Paul says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul's saying if anyone could possibly have confidence before God based on the flesh, it's me. And if anyone could possibly progress spiritually through human effort, it's me. I mean, look at Paul's pedigree. He was born into the one nation that really was God's special people. He was circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. He was a pure-blooded, pure-tongued Hebrew of Hebrews. Look at his knowledge. He was a Pharisee, a member of the strictest sect of Judaism. His teacher was the famous Gamaliel. He had probably memorized the Old Testament from his childhood, and he was an expert in the law of God. Look at his zeal. He was a persecutor of the church. He traveled land and sea for God, outworking all of his contemporaries. He says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. And I think that's Paul's sort of humble way of saying he was first. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers, he says. 
And look at his righteousness. He says, as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. In the eyes of man, Paul kept the law blamelessly. I mean, so much so that even compared to other Pharisees, Paul stood alone for his scrupulous and tenacious law-keeping. Now, let's try to translate this into a modern perspective. You know, what, what would Paul look like today? Well, imagine a man who had been raised in the church from birth. His dad was a pastor, his granddad his pastor, his great-granddad a pastor, and his Great-great-great-granddad was Charles Spurgeon. Uh, this man is homeschooled. He's, he's won the Bible Bee like every year. He's got his PhD from Harvard. He's really never gotten any trouble his whole life. Uh, he's always been straight-edged. He's always been disciplined. He's impeccably diligent and law-abiding. And not only that, but this guy is the most zealously religious person you've ever met. He prays hours a day. He studies the Scriptures. He boldly preaches to others. He goes on mission trips to dangerous places, risking his life. You see, from the perspective of the flesh, Paul had it all. I mean, he, he, he would be this spiritually intimidating kind of person before whom we'd all be tempted to just wilt. And so if anyone could possibly have confidence before God based on the flesh or progress spiritually by fleshly effort, it's Paul. But look at what Paul says in verses 7-9. through He says, But whatever gain I had, that is all of his self-righteousness, all of his fleshly accomplishment and achievement, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul looks at all of his self-righteousness, all of his fleshly status and achievements, and he counts them as loss and rubbish compared to Christ. He looks at his own righteousness and he sees this is nothing but filthy rags. And then he says, but in Christ, I have found a righteousness that is like a dazzling white robe. A righteousness that comes from God that is bestowed as a gift by faith. And Paul says, in fact, everything I had before, all of those fleshy achievements, not only was it nothing, it was lost. It was just holding me back. It was just an obstacle keeping me from Christ. And so now that I have found Christ, I fling those things aside. And he's saying to the Philippians, do not ever exchange reliance on Christ for confidence in the flesh. You see, if you or I, as Christians, begin to place our confidence back in the flesh, and we begin to rely on self-righteousness, it's like starting a journey where the burden starts off easy and light. 
And you have this great hope that this is a way that's going to lead to this wonderful outcome. But then it's like every step you take, the burden gets a little bit heavier. And it gets heavier. And it gets heavier until it becomes this crushing weight that utterly crushes you. Because what happens is, you know, as you rely on the flesh, you wake up one day and when you perform well, you, you feel sort of good about yourself. But then when you have a day when you perform poorly, you get discouraged and you feel down, but then it's like the closer you get to God or the more you understand who God really is, the more you begin to recognize that even your good days aren't good enough. And, and, and this journey that started with this bright hope becomes this dark, terrible cloud. And we begin to be crushed under the weight of guilt, shame, and fear. But listen to how John Bunyan explains what it was like when he came to the realization of essentially what Paul is describing here. And he came to see that, that there is a righteousness that Christ provides that, that doesn't come from our effort, but is this gift of God received by faith. Listen to John Bunyan explain that. He says, One day, as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And with the eyes of my soul, I saw Jesus at the Father's right hand. There, I said, is my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say to me, where is your righteousness? For it is always right before Him. I saw that it is not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness is Christ. Now my chains fell off indeed, my temptations fled away, and I lived sweetly at peace with God. Now I could look from myself to Him and could reckon that all my character was like the coins a rich man carries in his pocket when all his gold is safe in a trunk at home. Oh, I saw that my gold was indeed in a trunk at home in Christ my Lord. Now, Christ was all. My righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And so friend, if you are here this morning and you don't know Christ, you don't know this peace that comes from having His righteousness, well, His righteousness is available to you. And whatever self-righteousness of your own that, that you have that comes through the law, Lay it aside and place your confidence in Christ. Count your self-righteousness as lost for Christ so that you may gain Him and be found in Him, clothed with His righteousness forever. And believer, Christ is your righteousness. You are clothed with His righteousness by faith. You have a righteousness not of your own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. You have the righteousness of God that depends on faith. So rejoice in the Lord and continue relying on Christ and Christ alone. Never let go of Him in seeking to grow as a Christian. So that's number one. If we're to grow as Christians, grow by continuing to rely on Christ. Number two, grow as a Christian by treasuring Christ supremely. 
grow as a Christian by treasuring Christ supremely. You see, one of the things about legalism and self-righteousness is that it invariably reduces Christ to a means to an end. You see, rather than Christ Himself being the treasure and knowing Him being our joy, legalism always winds up making Christ a useful tool to get what we want from God. You see, the Judaizers thought Christ is useful. We needed Him. He gave us a big boost. But now we have to get the rest of the way. We've we've got to do enough good to make it to heaven. And so they reduce Christ to being like this ladder on the way up the mountain where you sort of climb up Christ and now you're like, okay, phew, He got me this far. Well, now I can say goodbye to the ladder and I can go on toward the goal. But look at how differently Paul thinks of Christ. Look back at verses 7 and 8. Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. You see, Paul's treasure is Christ Himself. It's not just the benefits that come from Him. Christ is not just a ticket to heaven, but it's knowing Christ that's Paul's delight. And it's being with Christ that's Paul's goal. And friends, this is the fruit of real reliance on Christ. You see, faith in Christ not only gives us this assurance that we have a righteousness before God that we don't have to earn, but faith in Christ gives us eyes to see the glory of God in Christ so that we will love Him. So that we see this is a God who is full of grace. This is a God who is worthy of worship. This is the God that I want to know and I want to be with. And life itself is found in Him. And so what is the effect of treasuring Christ supremely in Paul's life? Well, first, it's the glad surrender of all things for the sake of Christ. Look at second half of verse 8. Paul says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul freely and gladly laid down everything for Christ. His reputation, his former position among the Pharisees, his social status, his health, his wealth, his comfort, his family, his friends, even his former identity itself. And he looks at all of those things, all of his earthly treasures, and he counts it as loss and rubbish for Christ. It's like he's saying you could weigh it in the balance against Christ and it would be as nothing and less than nothing by comparison. It's like this story that Jesus told of the the man who finds treasure hidden in a field. And he goes and he sells everything he has, and then he comes back and with joy he buys the field. Because he knows all that he had is worth next to nothing compared to this treasure that he will gain through purchasing the field in which it is hidden. And so Paul knows that he is exchanging things which are fleeting and temporary for an eternal weight of glory in Christ. And so he gladly lays these things aside. But also, 
Look at what Paul embraces. Look at verse 9 and following. He says, That I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Right? So he, he gains with Christ, Christ's righteousness. And he says, that I may know Him. He gains the joy of knowing Christ and the power of His resurrection. He gains the experience of the power of Christ's resurrection working within Him. And then he says this, and that I may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. In other words, think about this. Paul has just said he has cast aside everything that he once held dear. But now, in Christ, he freely embraces suffering and becoming like Him in His death. In other words, things that were gained have become a loss, and things that were lost, like suffering, have become gain because everything is transvalued in light of Christ. And Paul now counts everything as either gain or loss in proportion to whether it brings him nearer or farther from Christ. And he counts suffering as gain because he sees it as one of the God-ordained ways by which he can know Christ more. And friends, how could that not be? Christ is our Savior who suffered for us. And so it makes sense that it would be in the midst of suffering that we would find communion with Him the sweetest. And it is often only by suffering that the sin that keeps us from Him can be purged away. And that's why Paul can say with the hymn writer, Nearer, my God, to Thee, Nearer to thee, even though it be a cross that raiseth me. And so, friends, do we treasure Christ like that? I mean, if we want to grow as Christians, that's how it will happen. It won't come through Judaizing doctrine or legalism, it won't come through trying to pursue things to make ourselves feel super spiritual. No, it will come when we look to Christ and we rely on Christ and then we treasure Christ. And we strive to know Him. We don't treat Him as a means to an end, but we treat Him as the end and the goal itself. And we begin to count everything in our life as loss or gain in proportion to whether it brings us nearer to Christ or farther from Him. That is how Christians grow. So, this brings us to number three. How do we grow as Christians? Well, we grow as Christians by Pressing on towards Christ-likeness. We grow by pressing on towards Christ-likeness. So we rely on Christ, we treasure Christ, and we pursue Christ-likeness. Now look with me at... Um, actually, first, let me say this. So again, this is an area that the Judaizers got wrong. Right? So not only does legalism lead to lack of assurance... Not only does it lead to treating Christ like a means to an end, but legalism and self-righteousness inevitably leads to spiritual competition. And it leads to comparing yourself to other people. And as we talked about before, why was circumcision and Old Testament law keeping attractive? It was because it was a way to make you feel like you measured up admirably, admirably to others. And so if you're doing well, you could sort of rest on your laurels and feel self-satisfied. But if you're falling short, it would be devastating 
in terms of the sense of failure and misery. But look at how Paul describes his pursuit of Christian growth in verses 12 through 16. And remember, this is the great apostle himself. I mean, the man who planted the Philippian church and many others. Look what he says, picking up in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And Paul's saying, I haven't arrived. He says in verse 12, I haven't already obtained this. And I think that this refers back to verses 10 and 11, where Paul speaks of seeking after full, he's saying, I don't have full knowledge of Christ. I haven't fully experienced the power of Christ's resurrection. I haven't fully experienced death to sin. You know, he's saying these are still things that are keeping me from being as close to Christ as I want to be. I'm not yet perfect. But he says, but I press on toward that goal. My eyes are fixed on Christ and I want to be with Him and I'm striving to be like Him. And look at how Paul says he goes about doing this. In verse 13 he says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal. Now think about how different this is than legalistic spiritual competition. You know, Paul doesn't look back on his life at the things he's accomplished. How many churches he's planted, how many people he's won to Christ. He doesn't look back on his circumcision. He doesn't look back on his baptism. He doesn't look back on you know, all the righteous deeds he's done. And he's not measuring himself up against other people in the church to kind of decide, am, am I doing okay? No, what he does is he's looking at Christ. He's making Christ-likeness his goal. And so this means he doesn't When he falls short, he doesn't wallow in guilt and shame. He forgets things that are behind because he knows in Christ there's forgiveness. But it also means that he doesn't rest on his laurels or or past successes. I mean, no matter how far he's come, he doesn't look around and think, okay, I'm ahead of other people. No, he looks at Christ and he sees how much further he has to go. And so he presses on with this energy and zeal. And his, very, his goal is to grow into the very measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And I think this touches on something we don't often think about as Christians. And it's that there is a danger of maturity breeding slothfulness. You know, so often I think it's, it's the young Christians that are the most zealous and eager. And I think Paul's implying here, well, that ought not be. Growth in Christ should promote zeal for Christ. You know, it shouldn't be that we kind of get our respectable sins taken care of and then feel like we can coast. No, it should, our goal should be to be like Christ. Uh, for those of you who have read the book uh, Pilgrim's Progress, um, you may remember that section. So, so Pilgrim, uh, or Christian, he makes it through the narrow gate and the cross, and, and then he starts going up this 
mountain. And it seems like he's making good progress, and he gets to this spot, and there's a bench, and he kind of decides, I'm going to sit down and just in, enjoy the view. Like, I've really come a long way. I can just relax. And of course, what happens is he accidentally falls asleep. And then he wakes up, and he's alarmed that it's almost nighttime, and so he gets off and he hurries away. And, and then as he's going, he realizes he left his certificate behind. And, and I think one of the things Bunyan is getting at there is the danger of, okay, right after you've sort of progressed, how easy it is to just sort of relax. And instead of watching and praying, instead of pressing on toward the goal, we can become slothful in our spiritual walk. And here Paul's saying, keep progressing. Grow in Christ by relying on Christ, by treasuring Christ, and making Christ-likeness your goal. Keep your eyes fixed on Him. Don't lose your spiritual fervor. Press on toward the goal. Never be satisfied with little sins in your life. Never think you've arrived and reached the place where you can just coast, but press on toward perfection and finish the race. And so in other words, don't let maturity breed slothfulness, but vigilance and zeal. As Paul says in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, right, in whatever areas you may need correction, God will reveal that also to you. And then finally, Paul adds in verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. And you see, this brings us full circle to where we began, right? Zeal to grow as a Christian is a good thing. We should strive to grow, it, and it will take effort and work. But Paul is saying, in your efforts to grow, hold true to what you have attained. Don't ever be deceived into thinking that Christian growth will result from letting go of Christ or taking your eyes off of Christ. Don't believe the lie that the road to Christian growth comes from works of the flesh or moving on from Christ or spiritually competing against others. Paul's saying, no, no, these roads are U-turns. But, grow as, but growth as a Christian comes as we rely on Christ fully, as we treasure Him supremely, and as we pursue Christ-likeness zealously. And so may the Lord give us grace to do that. Amen. Let's pray.